Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. You know, again, once you know the God of love, you fire the God of scruples. You fire the God of categories. You fire the God of us and them. So there's endless the number of gods that you need to fire. But it happens once you know the God of love. Father Greg Boyle, Jesuit priest, founder of Homeboy Industries in East L.A., the world's largest and most successful gang intervention and rehabilitation program, talks about mysticism and the God of love, tenderness, and inclusion. Find me a mystic who believes in hell, and I will think you have not located a mystic. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought a lot about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I'm honored today to welcome Father Greg Boyle. In 1988, Father Greg founded Homeboy Industries in East L.A., the world's largest gang intervention, rehab, and reentry program, and has received countless awards from civic leaders and philanthropists, and has been praised by Pope Francis for his work, and I quote, in favor of the rights and dignity of every person, and his commitment to ensure the opportunities for formerly gang-involved and previously incarcerated men and women to redirect their lives and become contributing members of society, unquote. Father Greg has written three books about his experiences and his faith, Tattoos on the Heart, Barking to the Choir, and most recently, The Whole Language. And you can get them from Homeboy Industries or Amazon.com. And I'd like to mention he's also the narrator of these books if you want to listen to them on Audible, which gives added life and color to his stories. Some are humorous, some are heartbreaking. Welcome, Father Greg. What a pleasure it is for me to talk with you today. Thank you. It's a privilege to be with you. I know from your book that you get 93 texts a day saying, gee, I got to talk to you. So I really appreciate you taking this time for our podcast and our listeners. Uh, so you're a, you're a Los Angelino yourself. How did you become a priest in the Jesuit order and how did you get into this work? Uh, well, I was educated by the Jesuits and I was drawn to them because they were both prophetic and joyous and hilarious. And so that, that kind of, uh, I said, well, I, I'm going to have what they're having. And and so, um, you know, so then I entered the Jesuits 50 years ago. Jesuits take a long time for training and education, and I did a lot of things and went a lot of places. I went to Bolivia, and it kind of changed my heart. And so I, you know, asked my provincial to send me to the poorest place where I could use my Spanish. And so he sent me to Dolores Mission in 1986. So I've been pretty much in in that community living there anyway, since then. And then, you know, the, the vocation within a vocation was, you know, working with gang members, because in 1988, I started burying kids. Mm-hmm. So um, 
we just did things. We started a school and a, a variety of things. So, Well, in, in your book, The Whole Language, you call your ministry therapeutic mysticism. I understand therapy, but what is mysticism? Mysticism is a, is a new way of seeing, you know. So if you look at the mystics, Ignatius, Julian of Norwich, all the mystics had uh, Francis of Assisi. They just saw things as God did, does. And so that's, that's kind of important because um, we, we're, we're categorical people. We want to kind of include and exclude. We want to say who's in and who's out. And as we try to kind of imagine a circle of compassion and then imagine nobody's standing outside that circle, which is God's dream come true, well, then, you know, we get to a place where we um, see as God does. And that's the mystical view that can stand with affectionate awe, as St. Ignatius would say, in, in the face of people who carry so much. Yeah, and I can see that this this mystical language in, in all of your writings, because you are not interested in divisions and categories. For example, you use a lot of Buddhist language like Sangha for community or Bodhi heart or Buddha nature. How did you come to this realization or how did you know it, it is the it is the true way? You say this is how God sees. I think another Catholic would say, but this is heresy. How how do you know? How do you know? <laughs> Which part is heresy? I don't know. The, perhaps that uh, uh, the inclusion of other other religions and faith traditions and cultural. Oh gosh, that's what could be what could be further from how God sees things. You know. Yeah. So Jesus ends his life by saying that you may be one. Mm. You know, and it's not about um, you know it, it, the, the the four things that matter to Jesus were inclusion. The things that he took seriously were inclusion, um, nonviolence, unconditional loving kindness, and compassionate acceptance. So, you know, it's, it's important to kind of listen to the world and be attentive to wisdom that's everywhere. And uh, I don't want to spend eternity with a God who has an issue with that. Well, why do so many Christians have a my way or the highway narrative? Yeah, well, because they're... they're uh, not yet mystics, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yeah. they're not, not I, yet at, at a place where they can, can be as expansive and as spacious as our God is who loves us without measure and without regret. You know, we're always, we're invited to be in the world who God is. And, you know, the opposite of God is demonizing. The opposite of God is, is that categorical sense that, um, there's an in crowd and people who belong outside. But in your gut, everybody knows that that's the opposite of God. In your mm. gut, you know. But sometimes we settle for a partial God when we should hold out for the God we actually have, the God of love. Once you know the God of love, you fire all the other gods. That's <laughs> the hope anyway. Yeah. Amen. I love your section about sin and joy and amartya and how this plays out in the healing of people's lives on their path to God. And Catholics, um, as we said, have a variety of views about sin and what it is and how it works. Uh, Regular listeners to this podcast have heard scholars about the mysteries of Fatima say that our sins offend Our Lady and that the calamities that befall us are punishments for their sins. But in Tattoos of the Heart, you have this great story about a woman in New Jersey who saw the Virgen on a tortilla and then wrote a pamphlet which issued the same kind of 
uh, warnings like, watch out, God is angry. How do, what do you think about all this? What is sin? Can God even be offended? Could there really be, could it, could it be possible that, that there is an Our Lady who said that um, to those shepherd children at Fatima that, that she's offended? Or is there some kind of miscommunication that's happening within our church? You know, the truth of the matter is that God has a vision and it's about us being one with each other. And so to the extent that we demonize, it's the opposite of how God sees. And so I I think it's God doesn't see sin. God sees son and daughter. You know, I've learned this from gang members. You know, I've never met Mm -hmm. a, a bad gang member, a bad person. Never. You know, I've met a traumatized person. I've met mentally ill people. I've met despondent people. I've met people who are really damaged and hurt. And so the day may come, I hope, when we stop punishing wound and seek to heal it. And But it takes us a while. You know, we, we settle for uh, moral outrage when we should hold out for moral compass. We, we settle for pointing things out rather than point the way. You know, we settle for uh, punishment rather than healing. So it's all part of where God is inviting us, inviting us to joy. And, and there is no need for an in crowd because everybody's in. Yeah. Have you felt this way in your heart of hearts your whole life as long as you can remember? Or is it um, a philosophy you came to over time? Well, the homies have kind of helped me do it. And that's for sure. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the, these are folks who've been to prison and who have you know, engaged in crimes and violence. And so how are you supposed to see it? No one who knows these folks are going to say evil or bad. But once you know people, you you kind of know how to see it and you know how to process it, you know. And Mm -hmm. so, um, so, yeah, I I don't know if I've always known it, but it's like, you know, the, the God who is tender, the God who is too busy loving us to be disappointed, the God who can't take his eyes off of us. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Meister Eckhart says um, it's a lie, any talk of God that doesn't comfort you. And, and he was a mystic. And, and Julian of Norwich says, you know, I, I keep trying to find this wrathful God everybody's talking about, I just can't find this God. She couldn't find that God in her experience. And that's exactly right. And do you find that prison softens? I always feared that prison made them harder. Or does it do both at once? Well, you know, I, I, I think you're right. I, prisons aren't exactly what we, we need, you know, for sure. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I mean, so, sometimes homies who have done a lot of time and we've gotten a lot of lifers lately who come out and I think, frankly, they have an insight, but they haven't experienced healing. A lot of them say that here. They say, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I I left prison after 23 years and I did have an, I got an insight, but I only experienced healing once I came here to Homeboy. And, And I get that because it's the relationship that heals. It's the culture that cherishes them, that heals. And then, they always say, you know, I, I'm used to being watched. We're all used to being watched, but we're not used to being seen. Mm-hmm. And then once you're seen, then you can be cherished. And it's it's the cherished person who really 
can move to another place of where they're sturdy and they're resilient and, and the world will throw at them what it will, but this time they're not going to be toppled by it. And Homeboy Industries provides them a place where this where this can happen, where former enemies become co-workers and finally brothers. How did you stumble upon this? I know that you say that you're not here for success. You're here to be faithful. And if success comes without being faithful, it's it's just an illusion. But you have found a, a lot of success for which you are celebrated left, right, north, south, all over the place. How'd you, how'd you get there? Or did the homies do it and you're just along for the ride? Yeah, you know, I don't know. It's all an evolution and, and growing, you know. And, and so we got to a place where, you know, we, we had to recalibrate, you know, because we were certainly all about jobs uh, to begin with. And then probably 15 years in, um, you know, we got to a place where we said, well, it's it's we shouldn't be job centric, even though, you know, obviously we're going to help people in that regard. We wanted to become healing centered and person centered because, you know, an employed gang member may or may not go back to prison and an um, educated one may or may not. But but it's our contention, in fact, guarantee that a healed gang member won't ever return to prison. But we, we've evolved, you know, we kind of we're always asking ourselves, what do we think we're doing when we do X, Y and Z? And so. So we've come, you know, communally at, to uh, each time a way to figure out how to best do this. Yeah, and you've done it for, um, well, let's see, 1998, 2022, you've done it for uh, 30, 34 years? Yeah. 34 years, and you started with a jobs program, and then there was a bakery, and then there was, uh, t- would you briefly just tell us a bit about, I know it burned down in 1992. Uh, the bakery did. Yeah, so, I mean, we started with a school because there were so many middle school, junior high age kids who had been given the boot from their homeschool. Nobody wanted them. Yeah. So we started a school because there was no place for them to go. And then they said, if only we had jobs. And then we started a jobs program, trying to find employers willing to hire them. And that wasn't so forthcoming. Just one thing led to another. And now we're the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on the planet. So 10,000 folks a year walk through our doors wanting to reimagine their lives. You do tattoo removal. That's a big part of it. Yes. I'm trying to quiet people down outside my office because they they don't understand that I'm (laughs) loud. Yeah, so we have a free tattoo removal. Everything kind of evolved for a long time, you know, where we got to a place where we would add and subtract things, you know, therapy and tattoo removal and grief and loss and anger management and parenting and all sorts of classes that will help people. Um, and you, th- you said tens of, t- tens of thousands, uh, 10,000 folks a year walk through. 10, our folks. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting, uh, in your book, tattoos of the heart is your eagerness to get them to move beyond, right? They, they're not allowed to linger. They're not allowed to come back once they're on their feet because they could find their way in, back into harm's harm's path. Your goal is to get them be, beyond not needing you anymore. Well, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if they even need me in the first place, but uh, you know, they, they, it's an 18 month program. So it, it has a, you know, a timeline on it. And so the idea is to be able to, um, 
you know, get folks uh, resilient and able to uh, move past us. You know, I mean, healing ends in the graveyard, but there's, Mm -hmm. we have our 18 month program, which is kind of, we sort of decided, you know, is a year is too short, two years is too long. So we landed on 18 months. But after we did, we, we kind of said to ourselves, oh, well, you know, it, 18 months is the time it takes for a child, an infant, to connect to the caregiver. You know, that's kind of a, we thought, yeah, this is about attachment repair. Yeah. So there's an essential foundational healing that happens that people, our hope is that they'll surrender to it. Yeah, well, and you say healing ends in the graveyard. You have faced death more than most Americans, for sure. You've buried hundreds of young men killed uh, through gang violence. You accompanied your mother as she prepared for her own passing, which was which was quite joyful. And you write about at um, the whole language. And you've considered your own mortality through leukemia. What do you think? What is death? What is this change of clothes that you describe that we are all headed for? Yeah, the change of clothing is uh, that comes from the Dalai Lama when somebody asked him about his his personal his sense of his own mortality and death, and he just shrugged and smiled and said, "Change of clothing," and <laughs> and that's that's kind of you want to have a light grasp on this, you know, and and you get that throughout Scripture, of course, you know, kind of death. Where is your sting? Death has no power. They said of Jesus, you know, death could not hold him. And, and that's right. You know, that's what you that's what you hope yeah. for, you know. And so I've buried 255 young people killed because of gang violence, not all from my parish, of course, but but because I run a really large gang intervention program, I, I get asked to do this. And so you have to kind of put death in its place, if death is the worst thing that can happen to you, then you're going to be toppled by life itself. And and you don't want that to happen. So... Yeah, well, what do you think happens? I'm, I, You know, the Dalai Lama is probably preparing for his reincarnation. But that's not how Catholics understand it. Uh, how do you understand what will happen to us uh, on the other side? Oh, I don't know, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, eternal life is here and now. We're only saved in the present moment. Mm. Jesus doesn't talk about the afterlife. He, he he doesn't talk about the hereafter, but but the here and now. Yeah, this eternal that, moment. Yeah, that's that's where we need to be. I, there's a quotation that's which I did not jot down from one of your books, which is that uh, the the real miracle is not to walk on water, but to walk on the green grass and and know that it's here and it's today. I, can you help me with that? I just don't remember it. Yeah, I think that comes from Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, it's though it comes from Thich Nhat Hanh, it's exceedingly, you know, Christian. Yeah, right. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. No, yeah. So it's right here. And so, you know, the the uh, Acts of the Apostles first reading yesterday was about, uh, it says the disciples were filled with joy. And so joy is kind of the mark of authentic discipleship. And it's about, again, being in the present moment. And then you can delight in the person who's right in front of you. And uh, it's hard to do, you know, because how do you... Mm-hmm. You have to choose to cherish with every breath you take. This is not easy, um, but mm-hmm. it is the thing that we are uh, invited to do. 
you know, I, I'm not sure that we've been served well by the notion that that it's all about heaven. I mean, Jesus didn't say, if you want to get to heaven, do this. He said, do this, heaven. You know, so it's, it's about, um, he's not inviting the rich young man to grim duty. He's inviting him to joy, which is where disciples, disciples know where to find the joy. Holy people know where to find the joy, but also healthy people know where to find the joy. They're kind of interchangeable. A healthy person is a holy person, and a holy person is a healthy person. But we've, we've kind of gotten to this place where we, we've settled for piety. We think piety is holiness. We think holiness looks like, I don't know, folded hands. Mm-hmm. And, but it isn't. It's uh, joyful people. That's, you know, the disciples were filled with joy. That's how you knew. Do you have uh, little techniques that you do to bring you back to the present? Or you've been practicing so long that you see Jesus in everyone you encounter? Oh, no, it's a constant thing. I wish it were once and for all, then you wouldn't have to yeah. deal with it. But you're, <laughs> you're constantly, you have to catch yourself all the time. You have to kind of stop and say, okay, um, you know, you're getting annoyed. <laughs> yeah, catch yourself. Right. Like right now we have, I don't know, hundred people in the waiting area, yeah. and and they're um, and it can get intense, and they can stand in front of the door, and why are you not seeing me ahead of all these other people? <laughs> and oh boy, it is easy to get annoyed and say, you know, wait your turn, sign up, and I'll go out and I'll say, I will see the very next person on the list, and which mm-hmm. upsets them because they all want to be specially treated, you know? And sometimes I'll bring in somebody ahead of someone else, especially if they don't play well with others. A week ago, I was talking with Colleen Dully, a journalist for the America Magazine, a Jesuit publication, and she was telling me about Madeleine Delbrel, a French mystic who worked alongside the French working priests in factories a hundred years ago. And she said that her monastery, Madeleine's was, was the subway and the people that she saw on it. And you have a very similar quotation. It made me think of it immediately where you had gone up to Our Lady of the Redwoods and then you found yourself back in East LA and there was some guy like in the refrigerator <laughs> of the of the little store. Would of you the, tell that story? Yeah. Of the supermarket. And it was the hottest yeah. day in, in record here in Los Angeles. So I had to, we come back from retreat from this beautiful, which I recommend this place, the Redwoods Monastery. But then I came home and I said, oh, we don't have any milk, so I'll go to the store. So it was a food for less. And I walk in, and I and as I'm walking in, I can see to the left, everybody is gathered around, and people are howling with laughter. And I, I got closer, and the refrigerated beer section, because it was so hot, was some cholo with, you know, <laughs> with the, the socks pulled up high and the oversized Dickies cut-off shorts and, and the the uh, you know the whole hairnet and tattoos that's it was a long time ago but he was just prone on top inside the beer case on top of the beer and he was just kind of resting and he was uh, cooling down and everybody was howling and i thought well this is as <laughs> holy as it gets mm. and so i uh yeah so i said well that this is my monastery yeah 
Right. That makes you kind of a friar that you're, you know, you're beyond the walls that we are. There you go. Out in the world instead of in, you know, withdrawn. Uh, So speaking of friars, I'd like to ask you about Pope Francis. And you've written that he is kind of, as you described, he's drawing a bigger circle and he's making a bigger church. And he's waiting for us to change very slowly. And that you, he doesn't want to leave anyone behind. And you wrote that the waiting itself is a holy thing. Would you, would you t- explain that some more? Well, you know, um, the church of the future is trying to come to us today, you know. The hope is that we will, um, you know, live from the marrow of the gospel. And, and that's just what we're being asked to do. And Francis, uh, of course, is nudging us all along. And the church has historically been an institution that circles the wagons. And Francis wants to widen the circle. And because that's one of the things that mattered to Jesus, one of the things that Jesus took seriously, the more inclusive it is, uh, the more like Jesus it is. And so, you know, we're inching our way towards rethinking everything, which is nice. That's the way it should be. Because it should be about growth. And, And yes, it is holy to wait. You wait for people to move beyond a kind of categorical, demonizing, exclusive way of seeing, to embrace something more mystical that that really resembles the heart of God, and that's what we're invited to. Where do you where do you think the church should go? How do you think he can open it further? And um, I take it there's no limits to this, right? Everyone everyone is welcome at this table. That's what I think. Yeah. Oh, but but that's not me. That's Jesus. Yeah. Right. Yes. Absolutely. And I, I the same um, interview I had with Colleen last week, we we compared this to the metaphor of the Thanksgiving dinner, you know, where you have the um, one, you know, sort of curmudgeonly uncle in the MAGA hat, and you have the uh, rebellious niece who's woke, and uh, they don't agree on anything, but they're both at the at the Thanksgiving table. And it's only after I finished that interview that I, it occurred to me that the word Thanksgiving in Greek is Eucharist. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's exactly what the Eucharist should be. Yeah. I, I was at something not that long ago where, where uh, the priest wanted a count of um, who was going to receive communion. And so he asked, how many of you are in the state of grace? <laughs> and then, I, which is, of course, horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, no. Try to imagine. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, so Francis says, you know, the Eucharist or the communion, you know, is not the grand prize for the perfect person or the holy person. It's food for the hungry person. Yeah. And so that's kind of important, you know, because otherwise, you know, we think it's about merit, you know, and it's... uh Obviously, Jesus would invite everybody to the table. One day we'll get there. We're not there yet. Um, but it's because our understanding of communion in the Eucharist is so partial. But but Francis obviously has it. He he gots it right, as they say. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost that uh, we individually we can't see, you know, we can't see Jesus in our brothers, but. W- at least we as a community can stick with Jesus long enough that we remember it from time to time, even if we forget it when we get angry at the guy who cut us off or I don't know, it's built of crooked timbers. It's a giant uh, 
a hospital, like, like they say, it's not a hotel for the saints, but a hospital for the, the sick is our church. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's as it should be, you know, and, and I think it's, I think the closer we can stay, you know, to the, to the marrow of the gospel, as St. Francis of Assisi always talked about, and live from that place, the more joyful we're going to be, and the less fearful. I mean, that's, you know, you, you had all the apostles who were locked in that upper room, padlocked multiple times because they were afraid. And everybody talks mess about Thomas, but Thomas wasn't in the room. You know, he was out in the world. I always admired that. You know, I always thought, yeah, yeah, there he is. And then they they chew him out because he he says, unless I see the wounds and all that stuff. But yeah, go easy on him because he wasn't locked in that room like the rest of you guys are. And it's a good parallel to the church that's frightened. And do not be afraid appears in in the Bible 365 times, one for every day of the year. So I'm going to think it's kind of important. And so that that we're invited to fearlessness, which is which is a hallmark along with joy of the gospel. So what are we afraid of? How do we get to be afraid? I think we get categorical and we get to a place where we say uh, there's us and them. And, and we're frightened of, of something getting messed with where instead of being open, you know, earlier we were talking about you know, kind of Buddhist insights like that somehow is at odds with anything. You know, wisdom is wisdom. And the, to the extent that you can bring stuff in and it, you can, can see that you can incorporate it. And it's with, and again, it's, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of anything at all. That fearlessness is one of the marks, I think, of, of authentic discipleship. And, but I think we don't even know how frightened we are you know, of change, of, of things, of being different than what we've always known it to be. Yeah, no, and I don't think we like it when people use different names for it. You know, like we would really like people to um, to pledge uh, fealty and allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth, the first century carpenter, but we kind of forget that he was the word at the beginning of everything. And so perhaps there's a way to be a, a faithful follower of Jesus without ever having heard his name because you live on the other end of the world or because your, you know, your catechesis so far was not very good. And so you're in a uh, you sort of turned away from the church, even though you might see the beauty of God in the moment, in your fellow human being, in the eternal, the eternal now, that sort of thing. Yeah, in the eternal now. And. And so you, you have, you know, the kindness is the only non-delusional response to everything. So if you can be anchored in kindness, which is the essence of who our God is, and, and we're always being invited to be in the world who God is, loving, kind, compassionate, then you can't go wrong. Then you find your true self in loving. And, and that's all we're ever being asked to do you know, is to kind of find our true selves. And then that's where the joy is. That's why it's, you know, the disciples were filled with joy because they all had found their true selves in loving. It wasn't about adhering to um, church teachings. It wasn't about that. It was about the joy of finding your true self in love. And, And that's what Jesus invites us to. Yeah. 
Do you, yes, do you have any uh, special advice for teachers? I know you've been a teacher. I'm a teacher in a little high school here in Northern California. And, you know, none of my students face the kind of street violence that you see every day, really not by a long shot. But we do have a diverse urban school economically and demographically. And we do have some large, you know, public housing projects here in the county. And there's a lot of middle class kids and working class kids, too. But if I say to one kid, how was your spring break? They might say, great, we went to Hawaii. And then I ask another kid and it's like, oh, my dad just got out of prison and, and stole my pain medicine or something like that. So there's there's a lot of poverty and domestic violence in every, uh, you know, spiritual poverty in, in every family. And, and in the pandemic, we've lost a few kids to murder or suicide, but, you know, a handful. But you never quite know what each kid is facing at home. And you just have to love them. And they're really, really young. But at the same time, you know, where we're, the state expects us to be teaching and to have, you know, um, oh, accountability and standards and, and things like that. And you, you write in Tattoos of the Heart, you stand with the belligerent, the surly and the badly behaved until the bad behavior is understood for the vocabulary it is, which is pain and a burden they can't bear. How would you balance very, very young people? You know, who, and without knowing where they're coming from, with also our, you know, state-funded obligation to be doing um, the the content in the curriculum. Yeah, you have to do uh, you have to do the content and you have to do the curriculum, mm-hmm. but it's far more important um, that your students know you than they know what you know. And mm-hmm. and you know, I always uh, a veteran teacher, and I think I mentioned this in tattoos. Said you know. Uh, give me advice. And she said, know every name by tomorrow. And, and it's just, there isn't better advice than that, you know, because it's, it's people want to be known. People want to feel less invisible. People want to be seen once they're safe and then seen, then they can be cherished. And, and systems change when people change and people change when they're cherished. So somehow we want to get to that place where we, you know, love as we have been loved. In the end, it's the relationship that's going to propel people to the next thing. Here at Homeboy, you know, we we do all we deliver all the services that comparable programs deliver. You know, anger management and tattoo removal therapy, case management. You name it, we do it. But it's all secondary to the culture of cherishing it's all secondary to the the community of beloved belonging and and it's important to keep it secondary a lot of times people make it primary and then it's then we become the dmv you know we're just delivering services Mm -hmm. but but the hope is that it won't be like that the hope is that it'll be place where people you know, because everybody walks through the door, comes barricaded behind a wall of shame and disgrace. And the only thing that can scale that wall is tenderness. So tenderness is connective tissue. It's how your love becomes real. Otherwise, your love stays in your heart or your head or the ether. But unless it becomes tender, it, it doesn't connect. And and that's what's so essential here. I'll ask you a question that uh, I hope it's not childish. I hope it's childlike. But, uh, you know, we should know the names of our students and each other and our fellow human beings. Do you, do you believe the way, you know, the way Jesus talks where God knows, God knows um, whether a hair on your head is going to be white or black. God knows because he, he knew you before you were, you know, knit in the womb. Do you see God as a person, a person with um, 
with like a, a interpersonal friendship that we will enjoy with our father, or do you see it as sort of a more amorphous force of tender kindness? You know, uh, because you know, in Buddhism, there is no person God. There's a great wisdom, but there's no God with a personality. How do you how do you understand this as a Jesuit priest? Yeah, well, I mean, love is God's religion, and and so. And scripture, of course, tells us that God is love. And so that that's, you know, do I believe in God? Absolutely. You know, do I believe in a male, you know, father? No, of course not. But, but you know, I, I believe that God is love. And so I, I feel this force, this energy that's unmistakable. Um, and, and, and I feel myself, uh, you know, held tenderly by this God. So, um, but we grow up, you know, obviously I thought God was, you know, had a big beard and flowing robes, you know, but we all believe that when we're kids. And then, you know, you, you, you move, you grow and suddenly you're seeing it differently. And, you know, that's why even the growth of uh, mystics, you know, mystics had, you know, sometimes they were quite exacting and demanding of themselves and scrupulous. St. Ignatius of Loyola was very scrupulous. And then, but then as he gets towards the end of his life, it's this union that's so exquisite, that's so um, extraordinary that, that it's hard for them to imagine that this is why find me a mystic who believes in hell and I will think you have not located a mystic. You know, because once they have a sense of the God that's that's huge, the God who's always greater, as St. Ignatius always said, then you kind of go, oh, okay. I mean, Julian of Norwich had this had this hard time with sin even because she just didn't think that God had, you know, didn't see people that way. It was just God was delighting. I mean, even uh, Isaiah talks about, you know, you are my delight. This is my my new name for you, my delight. Well, that's the God we have. And even Jesus had to go through the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible, and, and he sifted things. He filtered things. And he would say, I don't believe this. Oh, I believe that. I don't believe this. The things he quotes uh, are important, but it's also important the things he doesn't mention, the things he doesn't quote, and, and essentially the God who's you know, the one false move God. Jesus doesn't believe in that God. He believes in the no matter whatness of God. And that's different. I'm very glad to hear that. And I've been trying different. to get uh, different guests to uh, sort of confirm the C.S. Lewis view of hell that you only sit there until you're ready to leave. Uh, and I just think we have so many um, points of faith uh, elements that, you know, of, of creed and magisterium and stuff where we put all of these characteristics into our faith and they don't feel correct intuitively because I have, uh, I have small children and I couldn't imagine a time when I would say like, okay, you can't come back. Right. That couldn't, there's always, how could you ever separate yourself from your children? And, and I'm a very imperfect father. And then imagine a perfect father of he in heaven ever, ever wishing to put, not wishing, but ever choosing or uh, to put someone in hell and not let them out. Yeah. You know, I, I, I had a homegirl who, uh, she was just here, but 
years ago, she came in and every horrible thing that could befall a human being has befallen her. And consequently, and to no surprise, gang member in prison, drug addict, kids taken away. She was sex trafficked. And she came in and wanted some help and with a bill or rent or something. So I was writing her check and she gets, she pushes the chair very close up to the front of the desk. And she says, she goes, damn, gee, I wish you were God. And I said, why? And she started to get teary eyed. And she said, because I think you'd let me into heaven. And so, and that got me all emotional. So I reached across the desk and I grabbed her hands and I pulled her in and I said, you know, Mika, if I get to heaven and you're not there, Mm. I'm not staying. And, and the confidence of course is there's exactly no way, none, zero, that if I get to heaven, she's not going to be there. Of course she's going to be there. And it's not about, you know, good and bad and do good and avoid evil. It's about the love of the God that we have. You know, we don't go to heaven because we're good. We go to heaven because God's good. You said that Ignatius lost interest in his scrupulosity. You know, I think of Ignatius, I think of the examine where I sit down at the end of the day. It's like, okay, these are the things I did. Well, here's where I can improve. He got bored of that, did you say? Is that uh, he sort of... uh... Not bored. I mean, I think he grew, you know, where he got to a place where um, more mystical and... You know, again, once you know the God of love, you fire the God of scruples. You fire the God of categories. You fire the God of us and them. So there's endless the number of gods that you need to fire. But it happens once you know the God of love. So I think that's what his experience was. He was just so overcome with love that it changed everything for him. But... You know, he had that moment where he was beating himself up and depriving himself and scruples and I'm the worst human being ever to. And none of it was how God saw him. And then he started to see as God sees and it changed everything. That's what mystical therapeutic mysticism Mm -hmm. is, as you asked earlier. That's what it's about. It's again. It's a. It's a, a way of seeing. It's a new is that pair the of glasses. That's is that the gospel that uh, we go to heaven because God is good, not because we are good. Or what would if you were to say if I were, may I ask you why are you a Christian? What is the gospel? How how would you say that? Well, you know, it, the gospel is taking seriously what Jesus took seriously. Yeah. It, it pretty much that. And so, and that's where you want to um, keep yourself anchored. And and then it's there is no concern about success or failure. It's only about being faithful to inclusion and nonviolence and unconditional loving kindness and compassionate acceptance. Once you're faithful to all those things, you know, outcomes are somebody else's concern. And and if I'm concerned about success, then it's about me. Yeah. And it can't be about me. Yeah. I think that's per- that's all my questions. Um, 
it, I know there's a million people in your waiting room. Is there anything else we should ask, I should ask you or you should say before we go? I think you covered it all. All right. May I ask you for a blessing for our listeners, their families, and our world? Sure. May God bless you and protect you and always keep you anchored in gratitude. May you know that you are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And may you know that you are a remarkable sign of the God who loves us without measure and without regret. And may God remind you every day of your true self and loving. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Odinitz and Father Greg Boyle recorded this conversation on May 9th, 2022. The Feast of St. Banban the Wise, a 5th century priest born in Ireland who worked with St. Patrick. In the Eastern Church, it's also the feast day of St. Christopher, the patron saint of travelers, a legendary giant who carried the baby Jesus across a river one night, hence Christ-bearer or Christopher. Our music comes from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our image, the logo of the dog, is from the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales at www.op.org. My name is Chris Odinitz. Please email me with questions, ideas, thoughts at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds God and angels sing.